The Battle of Wilson's Creek was the second large-scale battle of the American Civil War, and it set the stage for a bitter struggle over the state's identity and future. On August 10, 1861, the Union Army met Confederate forces near Springfield, Missouri. Union Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyon and Confederate Major General Benjamin McCullough led the battle. State Guard troops under Major General Sterling Price joined the Confederate Army. Missouri was divided in the beginning of the war, and it contributed thousands of men to both sides. Fighting in Missouri was bitter, desperate, and harsh. When the Civil War broke out in April of 1861, Missouri was neutral, but that status was tentative at best. Missouri had a lot of plantations and a sizable slave population. Plantation owners were going to do whatever it took to keep the system in place. Missouri also had a sizable poor and middle-class immigrant population that favored the Union. These mostly German immigrants fled oppressive regimes in Europe, and many were loyal to the U.S. for giving them asylum. Many did not own slaves, and may have seen the possible ending of slavery as a way to open up the economy to their benefit. Claiborne Fox Jackson was the governor of Missouri. He was born April 4, 1806 in Kentucky, and relocated to Missouri in 1826. After a career as a merchant selling anti-fever medications, he became interested in politics. He served in the Missouri House of Representatives for 12 years from 1836 to 1848. In the election of 1848, he was elected to the state senate, where he was a leader among the pro-slavery Democrats. Jackson had many pro-unionist political enemies, and his re-election to the Senate was derailed. He was elected governor in 1860 under a pro-unionist platform, but almost immediately began working toward Missouri's secession. After the attack on Fort Sumter in South Carolina, April of 1861, Jackson set his sights on a rebel Missouri. He set the stage for what would become called the Camp Jackson Affair. The Union held a large arsenal in St. Louis, and as tensions rose, Jackson and the rebels planned to take it. They were banking on a quick assault before the Federal forces would know what hit them. Through backdoor correspondence, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, was sending artillery to support Jackson. Jackson ordered state militia troops to encamp near St. Louis to await the shipment. Many of the soldiers stationed there called the camp Camp Jackson after the governor. General Nathaniel Lyon, who commanded the Union arsenal in St. Louis, found himself in a literal and figurative powder keg. Nathaniel Lyon was born July 14, 1818 in Ashford, Connecticut, to a farming family with a strong military background. Lyon intended to continue the military tradition, but he detested manual labor and farming. He preferred studying and reading, and he graduated 11th out of his class at 52 at West Point. Lyon fought in the Mexican War and in the Seminole War with marks for bravery, but his early military service had a dark side. The Pomo, an indigenous people of California, were being abused and degraded by Western settlers. After a violent confrontation, Lyon, a lieutenant at the time, leading a cavalry company, arrived to restore order. Lyon would order the killing of any Pomo the cavalry came across in what is referred to as the Bloody Island Massacre. The death toll among the Pomo is estimated between 50 and 400 people. Lyon was not to be taken lightly. Lyon was staunchly pro-Union and anti-slavery. Although his anti-slavery position was one of moderation, it is not apparent that he supported full abolition, nor did he intend to use violence to end slavery. But he was prepared to be violent to protect the integrity of the Union. Lyon was deeply religious, and he combined religious fervor with nationalism. Lyon felt he was an instrument of God's will on earth, and it was God's will to preserve the Union. Lyon's hard-headedness in the face of any conflict and his radical belief in the divine providence of his actions made him a character perfectly poised to pick a fight. 
His command style was one of aggression and boldness. He liked to keep his enemy guessing and on their toes. In the Holy Land of Missouri, he was fighting a crusade, and the rebels were the infidels. Lyon was aware the militia was awaiting the smuggled artillery and was concerned. If these guns fell into rebel hands, he knew he would have to face these arms on the battlefield. Lyon orders his soldiers to overrun Camp Jackson. They forced the militia's surrender, then paraded them through the streets of St. Louis. Many felt Lyon was overstepping his authority, and outrage over the treatment sparked widespread riots and violence throughout the city. Determined to bring the situation to heel, Lyon ordered his soldiers to fire into the rioters and disperse them. Outrage spread throughout the state. Many with rebel sympathies and some concerned over public safety and order felt it was time to take drastic action. The day after the rioting, the Missouri General Assembly authorized the creation of the Missouri State Guard. Protecting Missouri was the justification, but it was really a call to arms. The state was slipping out of federal control. Sterling Price, who had experience fighting in the Mexican War, took command of the State Guard. Price had been pro-Union until Lyon's seizure of the militia. He was astounded by the sheer brutality of Lyon's orders, and he chose to fight against Lyon. Price would be a rebel. Sterling Price was born September 4, 1809 in Farmville, Virginia. Before becoming a military man, Price was an attorney in Virginia. He relocated to Missouri in 1831. After establishing himself as a Missouri businessman, he was elected to the Missouri House of Representatives before being elected to the U.S. House in 1845. It would be a short stint. He resigned in 1846 to serve in the Mexican War. Price raised a regiment of cavalry and was elected its colonel. During the opening stages of the war, he served as a military governor of New Mexico. James K. Polk promoted him to brigadier general, and his star was rising. He led 300 men at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Rosales. Price won the battle despite being outnumbered, but the battle was fought after the war was already over. He returned to Missouri and was lauded for his efforts. Price, a natural leader, was beloved by his men. His personality was a rare combination of willfulness, stubbornness, and likability. His command style was aggressive and daring. Price rode the wave of popularity all the way to election as Missouri's governor from 1853 to 1857. When the secession crisis reared its ugly head, Price was on the side of Missouri staying in the Union. Despite sources' contention that it was Camp Jackson and its aftermath that prompted Price to switch sides, the fact that he was a tobacco plantation owner cast doubt that Lyon's actions were the sole motivation. Price was a common figure among commanders fighting for the South. He had an economic interest in the continuation of slavery and Missouri's ability to keep the institution. However, he was not a hardcore secessionist. Price could be best described as a conditional unionist. So long as the union protected his interests, he might have stayed loyal. Price had an iron will. His ability to keep his forces intact and fighting at Wilson's Creek was key to the battle's outcome. Price orders as commander of the state guard were to protect Missouri from Lyon and against what was seen as his attempt to usurp Missouri's government. To avoid a confrontation, a truce was declared. The Price-Harney truce stated that federal forces and the Missouri State Guard would actually work together. This truce was signed on May 21, 1861, between Sterling Price and General William Harney. Harney was the commander of the U.S. Army's Western Department. Harney would eventually be removed from command, and during his tenure, he tried to calm the situation that was boiling over in Missouri. He would have little success. Jackson showed support, but still wanted Confederate forces to enter the state. Lyon, who felt the truce was fragile, was also looking for a fight. Missouri was important strategically. Its access to the Mississippi River made it a trade hub, Trails led in and out of the state, and its location was a perfect staging ground for invading either the north or the south. 
Both sides coveted it, and Lyon was never going to give it up without a fight. To do so would have been not only a dereliction of duty, but also a loss of his divine mission. Talks to avoid fighting between Lyon and Jackson broke down. Lyon, who through pro-Union political agitation was named Brigadier General, pursued the Missouri Guard aggressively. Soldiers fought several skirmishes. Lyon seized Springfield, the capital, and Jackson and Price's forces retreated. Confederate reinforcements arrived under General Benjamin McCullough, who was nothing short of a Davy Crockett-style folk hero. His forces bolstered the army camp 75 miles outside of Springfield to about 12,000 men, compared with Lyon's 6,000 in Springfield. Brigadier General Benjamin McCullough was born on November 11, 1811 to a once prominent North Carolina family. His father, Alexander, mismanaged the finances of the family, and at an early age they moved west to seek better fortunes. McCullough grew disillusioned with his lack of social and financial mobility, and he later took up with none other than Davy Crockett. Crockett would be a big influence. McCullough styled much of himself after him, especially when it came to fighting for Texas independence. McCullough might have been at the Alamo had he not been sidelined by illness before he could arrive in San Antonio. McCullough earned a name for himself commanding artillery at the Battle of San Jacinto, which ultimately brought about Texas independence after the defeat of the Mexican army. McCullough was known as a hard and vicious personal combatant. His popularity and stock rose in the Mexican War as a cavalry scout. McCullough at that point had little formal military training, but had shown a knack for leading men into battle and for understanding the complexities of warfare. He was direct and never shied away from a fight. Throughout his career, McCullough earned his soldiers' loyalty by never giving an order he himself would not follow, although that loyalty could border on fanatical and later in the war proved to be a liability. McCullough died on his horse while scouting ahead of his troops at the Battle of Pea Ridge on March 7th of 1862. His men collapsed into disarray and the situation became unsalvageable. After he returned from the Battle of San Jacinto, McCullough became a prominent politician within the Te- Republic of Texas. He was elected to the Texas House of Representatives in 1839. McCullough was a champion of states' rights causes and chose to follow Texas to seceding and joining the Confederacy. Price and McCullough detested one another. McCullough thought Price an amateur in war, and Price thought McCullough was in Missouri only as long as it suited him. Lyon's second-in-command was Franz Seigel. He was born in Baden, Germany in 1824. Seigel was a standout student. As an intellectual, he felt compelled to join the Democratic Revolutions of 1848. He led the Baden Revolutionary Forces and proved to be courageous under fire as he was prone to daring heroics. The revolutions of 1848 ultimately failed, and many involved scattered all over the world. Seigel ended up in St. Louis, where he was called a 48er, a blanket term for recent immigrants to the U.S. fleeing post-revolutionary Europe. He became director of public schools in 1860. Seigel was a clear choice to lead a multicultural force of immigrants. He spoke five languages and had command experience even if no one considered him a great leader. After the start of the war, Seigel made colonel and commanded the 3rd Missouri Infantry. Seigel and Lyon respected each other, and Seigel backed Lyon on his unwavering need to crush the rebellion brewing in Missouri. Seigel and Lyon were the architects of, for the strategy of Wilson's Creek. Major Samuel Sturgis also played a major role in the battle. He was born June 11, 1822 in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. He was a Mexican War veteran and a West Point graduate. Sturgis was a respected commander, but not a particularly accomplished one. 
After Wilson's Creek, most of his career was spent being moved to different positions in theaters of the war. He and his Union cavalry were swept off the field by Nathan Bedford Forrest at the Battle of Bryce Crossroads in 1864. Sturgis likely would not be considered a great commander by anyone's assessment. He was loud, fat, and liked to cuss even in inappropriate moments. The rebel army at Wilson's Creek was comprised of soldiers from Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, and of course the Missouri State Guard. The Union Army comprised of soldiers from Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, and also men from all over who graduated West Point. Both sides would face supply shortages, especially Lyon and his soldiers. Many of Lyon's soldiers were facing the end of their enlistment and had not been paid regularly. Lyon continually begged for reinforcements and more men, but his requests were denied. Lyon decided to use his forces while he still had them. The Confederates fared better in manpower but faced shortages of ammunition and artillery. Hundreds of Price's men were unarmed. The armies fought in a similar style. As was tradition, troops marched in columns and fought in lines, ramming bullets into single shotguns in a smoke-filled battlefield. They went into battle with flags flying, to the beating of drums. Soldiers received orders through music, officers shouting, or flag signals. No one was safe from immediate harm. Many of the soldiers at Wilson's Creek had never fought a battle. There were the odd Mexican war veterans who had fighting experience as well as many of the generals. Officers often led from the front, both to control the action and inspire the men, leading to heavy losses among officers, including generals. Because of the lack of men, battle was rarely continuous. Engagements were mixed with the boredom of camp life, long marches, and skirmishes. The troops would be concentrated in a few key areas and moved in a kind of void, seeking to outmaneuver the enemy and win battles when the armies came into contact. Armies were brittle things to the American military mindset and needed to be protected. As a result, the most training was defensive in nature. The circumstances dictated the nature of the battle, as often happens. Bullish commanders at Wilson's Creek would order men into the thick of combat, and the battle would develop as a meeting engagement neither side was able to truly entrench. Neither army was built nor trained to carry out costly assaults, Instead, America's tradition, exemplified by victories like Cowpens, New Orleans, and Buena Vista, was to win with defensive tactics that emphasized infantry volley fire and defensive formations. The infantry predominantly used smoothbore muskets at Wilson's Creek, rifled muskets which were more accurate at long range, defensive warfare, and entrenchment did not come until later. At Wilson's Creek, effective fire had to come from close range, so the fighting was close and personal. America entered the Civil War without a large professional army or any recent military experience beyond the brief war with Mexico and frontier struggles with Native Americans and Mormons. Small cavalry units were trained in scouting, raiding, and skirmishing, but not in making massive charges. Despite many of the generals having cavalry experience, neither side was able to use that tactic to great effect. Further bolstering this defensive mindset was the nature of American society. Many of the men were volunteers who committed to fighting for a determined amount of time, they were not professionals in a hierarchical society where order and deference were valued to an extreme. Americans did not see themselves as a military people, so the soldiers balked at pointless assaults, discipline, and arrogant officers. Regimental officers were elected. When Ned Phelps of the 1st Louisiana Battalion sat down to eat with Major General John Bankhead Magruder, the general asked the private if he knew whom he was dining with. Phelps shot back, I used to be particular whom I ate with, but now I don't care a damn. Artillery tactics generally combined the best of French and British methods, although in this case Americans were generally as aggressive as their European counterparts. Cannons were light for use in rugged terrain and quickly deployed for close work. 
All around, Civil War artillery was used conservatively, and both sides favored weapons that were fast to make and reliable. Lyon and Seigel planned to approach the Confederate camp at Wilson's Creek, 10 miles outside Springfield, in two columns and a pincer movement. Lyon led the first column, Seigel led the southern pincer. They had hoped to envelop the unsuspecting foe by quickly taking the high ground around the creek. When the rebels scattered, the Union forces would reunite and force the enemy into retreat. Lyon and Seigel understood this meant putting the enemy between their respective forces. It would make communication difficult, if not impossible. The attack required exceptional timing and a good deal of luck. Both men hoped to win a decisive battle in one blow and pacify the state for the foreseeable future. Lyon was aware that the rebel army was growing in numbers and popularity. Experience told Lyon and Seigel that the Missouri State Guard would run in a fight. After running the guard off, they could concentrate on the remaining rebel forces and strike before the situation became untenable. Lyon had no timetable for reinforcements. The commander of the Department of the West, John C. Fremont, was Lyon's superior. President Abraham Lincoln appointed him July 1, 1861 to his position, which put him in command of everything west of the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River. Fremont was given full command of this theater of operations with very little oversight. Despite Lyon's frequent requests for reinforcements, Fremont did not think the state guard was a threat. Under the circumstances, Lyon believed he had to attack, but his decision to split his forces was an egregious error. Lyon arrived early, August 10, 1861, and advanced to the rebel camp. The rebels were only beginning to rise from bed. Lyon encountered a small band of cavalry that swiftly retreated to warn the Confederate commanders. At the same time, Seigel's forces arrived and began to shore up the other side of the line. By 5 a.m., the battle lines were beginning to form. Seigel ordered his artillery to form up and begin preparations for a bombardment of the rebel forces, which were hastily forming for battle. Lyon also ordered soldiers to a nearby field to protect the Union left flank in case any maneuvers were attempted on that side of the line that could affect Lyon's hold. Lyon ordered his regulars to seize a hill, which would later be known as Bloody Hill, that he saw as an optimal position for placing heavy guns. Lyon, characteristically, pushed his troops to take the hill as they encountered resistance from State Guard cavalry. When Seigel began his bombardment, the Southerners began to flee according to plan. Lyon ordered his troops to begin advancing off Bloody Hill to attack, but shelling from Pulaski's Arkansas battery slowed the fighters. The Pulaski battery, which had crept slowly up Bloody Hill to attack the Union forces, and it was pivotal in taking the initiative from Lyon, the Union was on the defensive, and Seigel's forces would have to be making headway if they had any chance of getting the offensive going again. For Lyon, the stalled momentum was unfortunate, but because he had well-placed guns, he was confident he could overcome the threat. Captain James Totten's artillery returned fire on the Pulaski battery and what ensued was a long-fought artillery duel. McCullough ordered an advance on Plummer's men, who upon realizing the Union attack was stalled, were advancing toward the Pulaski battery in the hopes of routing it and getting the attack going again. Plummer's forces fled after a brief but intense firefight and began to retreat. The attacking force attempted to push its advantage only to be stymied by the Union artillery off Bloody Hill and were forced to retreat themselves. The Union left flank was exposed, but the rebels had no forces nearby in which to exploit this turn of events. At the same time, Seigel continued his advance toward the rebel encampment, driving off limited resistance. Seigel took up position in a field and set up his guns to batter the Confederates. 
From this point, he began to suspect that Lyon was stalled and that there was fighting on the hill. Beyond that, he likely knew very little. The Missouri State Guard launched an attack on Lyon's right flank on Bloody Hill. The fighting was at a stalemate. Meanwhile, Seigel advanced headlong through the fields surrounding a farm only to get a surprise attack from McCullough's troops. Seigel was bombarded and outmaneuvered by the rebel army. He was almost completely routed from the field and forced to retreat. His attack was poorly executed and his troops were out of position. Price had taken full command of the troops on Bloody Hill and was ordering wave after wave of attacks to drive the federal forces back. Price, finally having the forces in place that he needed, kept up the pressure and the Union center began to falter. Lyon was in the thick of the fighting the whole way. He was attempting to rally his forces and reposition them when he was shot and killed. Lyon had taken a very active role in directing troops and on the communication of the lines. His death caused the complete breakdown of the command structure and effectively ended any chance the Union might have had at victory. With Seigel routed and Lyon dead, the situation for the Federal forces was grim and likely unsalvageable. About 10 a.m., after six hours of fighting, the Texas Cavalry attacked the right flank of Bloody Hill. The attack gave Price the space he needed to disengage his troops to regroup at the bottom of the hill. With Seigel's threat gone, the rebels had control of the field. Price ordered his third and largest assault on Bloody Hill, but the Union men were stubborn and Price was losing momentum. Sturgis had taken control of the Union army. His position was holding but barely, and worst of all, he had no word from Seigel on his progress. The third assault had turned back, but casualties were mounting. He wasn't sure how much more his army could take. Sturgis ordered a retreat off Bloody Hill and surrendered the field. Price didn't pursue. Reports were coming in all around the army. The ammunition was low and the troops were exhausted. Sturgis preserved what was left of his forces in the hopes of fighting another day. The rebels were victorious. The battle ultimately raged for six bloody and terrifying hours. For the men on both sides, it was hell, and none of them had seen anything like this. The total death toll on both sides was 537, and about 2,400 were wounded. Somewhere around 18,000 soldiers participated, but those numbers vary depending on sources. The Federals suffered 1,317 casualties, or 24.5% of the army, and the Rebels 1,222, or 12% of the army. Casualty numbers are considered killed, missing, wounded, or captured. Price wanted to seize the state for the Confederacy. McCullough, who was officially in charge, opted for a more measured approach. His orders were to also protect Arkansas from any Union incursion, so he wanted to consolidate and assess the situation further. McCullough knew the men were exhausted, supplies were low, and fall campaigning was going to be taxing on his men, and despite their good showing in the battle, he still did not really trust the Missouri State Guard or Price. Price's wish to seize the state convinced McCullough that Price was an average commander at best, and he attempted to reel Price in to a more realistic stance. The two parted ways. McCullough returned to Arkansas, and Price began his Grand Missouri campaign, which resulted in some minor victories, but Missouri remained mostly in Union hands. Price invaded Missouri in 1864, but lost the Battle of Westport. He was defeated by a Union army outside of Kansas City by Major General Samuel Curtis. Missouri remained in limbo for most of the war. While the state remained in the Union, the feelings on the ground were, were division and bitterness. Nathaniel Lyon, the first general killed in combat during the Civil War, was considered a martyr for the Union cause. 
While for many with Southern sympathies in Missouri, Sterling Price became the only man they felt was fighting for them. After Wilson's Creek, Missouri was a hotbed of guerrilla warfare and bitter fighting. Men like Bloody Bill Anderson and even the notorious Jesse James built their reputations there. We hear too little about battles like Wilson's Creek in our readings about the Civil War, but the events in Missouri were crucial. Missouri was secured by the Union Army, but the rebel victory only made the state more contested and more bitterly divided. Morale for the Confederate cause went up, and recruitment rode the wave. Union sympathizers must have been scared, but even Southern supporters had to feel uneasy. The Union kept a standing army there, and the war for Missouri did not end with Wilson's Creek. The battles of Pea Ridge and Prairie Grove would be fought, and although the rebels were unable to make headway in either contest, the state didn't become fully unionized. Missouri was fighting a civil war within the Civil War. William Tunnard of the 3rd Louisiana Infantry may have said it best. He wrote that Wilson's Creek enlightened many ignorant minds as to the seriousness and fearful certainty of the contest. 